title of this morning's sermon is this, Days of Weeping and Mourning. And you'll find that expression is there in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8, the first reading that we had this morning and reflecting there on the death of Moses, exceptional death that his body was not found. God hid it, buried him personally, and he was 120 years old. We read of him that uh, his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Think on that. Some of us a fair few years are younger than Moses and uh, wonder where our natural vigor has gone and our eyes are certainly growing quite dim. Well, you can see probably why I've chosen this passage and uh, that particular verse for our consideration this morning. The sovereign queen didn't quite reach 120, but died nevertheless full of years, 96, and those were years indeed, busy years, years we might say well spent. And as I think most of us here will be able to say, like I'm able to say, that uh, she was the only sovereign that, that we ever knew and whoever ruled over us, as the uh, national anthem would put it. And so we've lost somebody there that was a constant uh, in our lives, They've been a bit remote and a bit distant as, as a constant. And I've asked a few friends, did you ever see the Queen? And uh, those of you did, and I guess I've totted up. I saw her three times, but see is stretching it as uh, some of those occasions pass by in a vehicle or a coach or some such thing or was a distant figure on occasion I went to the uh, remembrance service at the the cenotaph in London when I was assumed in London and uh, saw her officiating there but uh, it'll be fair to say probably fair of all of us to say our paths never quite crossed I never had a conversation with her nor she with with me and I guess that's probably true of most people in our nation, that their encounter with her would have been as fleeting and as distant as the ones that I've just alluded to there. Curious time, our nation in mourning, 10 days of mourning. We've never, I think, known anything like that before, have we? Well, we've never had to mourn the passing of a sovereign who has, as mentioned, been the sovereign over this nation in all of our life, and uh, we've always been there, and now has passed away. I can't pretend that I can speak for the nation in that way, or interpret the national mood, let alone the mood in the, the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth of countries, most of which I've never visited, probably knew you neither, and their governments and their people, what they are thinking, what they are feeling at this time. Different generations, the younger generation, uh, older generation, those in the middle generation, and how it might affect each of us differently. Or can give you a lecture on how to grieve. I think there are some sort of etiquette advice out there, your 10 days, what to do, what not to do. And Well, I guess it's perhaps been a bit puzzling and uh, certain things haven't happened and I wonder quite why they haven't happened. Some things haven't happened that I can well understand. Why they haven't happened, not a day, not a time for those sorts of things there. But there isn't one size fits all. Some of you, I think, wept when you heard that Her Majesty had died. Others of us, perhaps, 
heard it quietly, heard it differently, and are still processing it uh, in that way. Uh, just as when you, you lose somebody that uh, some senses you're familiar with, so uh, can't really can claim myself to have been that familiar with her and private individual that she was. But we've been a bit distracted, haven't we? Maybe you've been talking there to the children, or grandchildren, or husbands, wives, whatever, and sharing memories, or if you're on your own, just reflecting there, your own thoughts and memories, and so much of history that has been associated with her and all the things that happened during her reign. So there's not one size fits all, and as if everybody should uh, do exact same thing and as in the people of Nineveh when they, they mourned, maybe rightly so, when they heard that Nineveh was going to be overthrown in a matter of days unless they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and that even the animals themselves were dressed in sackcloth and uh, uh, kind of deprived of some of their liberty and their movement. We can't all straight jacket mourning into being one thing or to be observed in one particular way, that there cannot be any laughter or any fun for our children and that kind of thing. Well, uh, Tuesday morning fellowship, I, I mentioned to you, don't think that's the sort of real powerhouse or seat of great learning. And we you know, convey to each other there great, great knowledge and wisdom. But we were talking actually about the monarchy as it turned out. And uh, uh, I think I vaguely recall how the matter arose, but it did. And we thought about the royal family, thought about the monarchy. And uh, I think I was scratching my head as to exactly what it is what it does, what it's meant to do. I'm not a constitutional expert. I don't think any of us are. And we're all kind of looking to constitutional experts to tell us in a sense just what it is that the monarchy is, that uh, we're suddenly thinking about and the future king, king as now is, from the uh, swearing in, the accession yesterday. We're all learning this stuff, aren't we? But it's a curious thing, I have to say, and I'm in good uh, way and precedent of saying that because the present king of England once said that it is the most uh, strange thing, curious thing, the monarchy, what it is and what it isn't. But in a way, and being a bit mischievous there, I could say whatever it is that the queen or king is meant to be, well, our late queen did it splendidly and did it wonderfully. Whatever that office, uh, in all its precision, in its kind of place within what we call a constitutional monarchy with parliaments and prime ministers all having their place and their say, whatever it is that she was meant to be. I think uh, she, she did that most splendidly and most wonderfully. Maybe we could say that what she was, uh, was that she was the public face of our nation to other nations, that uh, she in some respects represented the United Kingdom, and in a sense also reflected back to us as residents of the United Kingdom something, what it is that we are as a people. We'll go on to reflect more deeply upon that in a moment, whether we actually recognize that Britain that she reflected back to us. But maybe that's how we might think of her. And that's the monarchy, and particularly as she represented it, sort of held together there as if by invisible strands. What is our national identity? Kind of gave it a coherence and a, a shape that uh, she was as if like some adhesive or some glue holding together our national life and our 
national institutions and, and all that we are, or maybe are supposed to be, as the United Kingdom, that she was very much a historical figure. Some of us, perhaps, reach back somewhere to the Second World War. Faint recollections of it, maybe, or our parents were able to give us first-hand account. But, well, she was there, wasn't she, just? And, and how? that she, she was in that era, in that period, and representing something that beyond herself goes back uh, into maybe the, what we call the modern monarchy, Certainly the monarchy as it has been since Queen Victoria. How often do we think of Queen Victoria? How often do we uh, reflect on the monarchs that preceded Queen Elizabeth II? It's Victoria there. We often think of the station than we think of the, the person. But she had a connection with history and at the same time was perhaps quietly and in an understated way adapting that monarchy, the modern monarchy, to the present age, or at least in some fashion doing that and adjusting it, tweaking it, if you will, to this present age that we're in, an age which has a fair degree of, well, republicanism. And I've read tributes and very sincere tributes from people who validly say that they're not monarchists and actually given to them their own sort of reign, free reign over it, would abolish the monarchy, but, but could nevertheless acknowledge the Queen was the most significant and good figure and could respect her uh, even as a, if they couldn't quite respect the office of, of monarch, could respect the person that she was. We hear of politicians who are unable to swear any oaths of allegiance to the King and mention the name of God. And in a sense, fair enough, if they're atheists, we wouldn't really want them to be liars and hypocrites to speak about something that they don't believe in. And so the Queen, I think, was astute enough to know that the nation where she became sovereign of in 1952 and the coronation in 1953 is a very different nation today to the nation it was then. Now, if you can indulge me a little while here, uh, this is a fairly lengthy introduction to a sermon, I have said, there's another sermon, God willing, next Lord's Day evening. Because as I reflected upon this yesterday and adjusting my sermon, as it were, or my, my sort of program of sermons to, to adjust to the news, that there is something indeed, as King Charles reflecting some fair few years back, about what is the royal family, what is the monarchy, for want of a better word, a mystique about it. A mystique, or if I can even use the word here, and I use it carefully and advisedly from the pulpit, but a sort of magic about it, something other about it, that it possesses, possessed something that was different, that has an otherness. And I'm um, thinking about it a little this morning, perhaps think about it a bit more again, God willing, next week. A mystique magic and otherness that fascinates people, fascinates people, some people very, very much. That's why in their fascination, all the paparazzi whose behavior we might absolutely deplore, their long sort of photo lenses there, prying into the privacy of the royal family and knowing that there's a ready market for any pictures that they could snap up and find of the royal family and 
sort of indiscreet moments, moments where they thought they were not being observed, but actually were. And the pictures then appear in magazines. Those magazines publish them because they know the royal family are probably not going to come after them with legal action. Fascination, a market for that. While others at the same time are resentful of it. Resentful of the wealth, resentful of the position and how you can inherit such power and wealth. So republicanism is the, the end result of some of that. But there is, isn't there? There's something other about the royal family. Gives it away. There's the title. The royal family. Different. A mystique that they have, rightly or wrongly. Palaces. Well, we don't live in palaces there, do we? I think most of us there live in pretty modest surroundings. Palaces, ornate places, great wealth. Well, we were just saying that the other day at this uh, august gathering that uh, those of you who are visitors, our Tuesday morning fellowship, you must indeed wonder what this is. We rival the cabinet in terms of our kind of, you know, power that we wield and the kinds of things we talk about. It's actually we're looking at J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. That's the most part of what we do. But over tea and coffee at the end of it, we, we range widely in our conversation. But this, this otherness, this, this pomp, the circumstance, all of the titles, and mentioning the wealth there, the Queen, very recent times, paying income tax. And a fair amount of income tax, because a fair amount of wealth that uh, she had, and as do other members of the royal family. All of that, very visible, very public, and the, the big set piece events, trooping of the colour, and Remembrance Day, and, and royal weddings, and indeed royal funerals, a fascination, a mystique which travels well beyond our own shores and absorbs many. Be sure of it. I've had a little look, you know, in the United States, big, big news and speculation and all the stuff that's going on. What next? What's happening? And, uh, and we can be quite sure that at the Queen's funeral, this must be, I guess, in one sense, the biggest security event that there's ever been. So many heads of state so many former heads of state, other dignitaries, will be present there at Westminster Abbey on that day to mark the Queen's funeral. Fascination, an enduring interest, and on the other hand, a resentment. It's interesting, isn't it? And I really here just allow myself a little speculation, which I probably shouldn't, but I will. Just a need in the human heart for otherness, for something different, for mystique, for people, for a story indeed, that's different, different to our everyday, different to our own experience. So like with the royal family, you know, they walk among us. And I wonder at that, whether that actually is a good thing. I wonder that, because it suggests to me that they're occupying a place there, which only God should fill a void, that only God should occupy in people's thoughts and imaginations and, and in their focus. So that really by way of introduction and some of those things I'm going to pick up again, perhaps more so next Lord's Day evening. My first heading is actually this, it's right to mourn. It is actually right to mourn. And whenever anybody that we know, perhaps more personally, more intimate to us, passes away, we we, we are led, aren't we, into a period of reflection and self-reflection. We just think, who was that person? And memories we might have, their, 
they're suddenly there and things that we, we didn't know, we actually knew, we remember. And uh, we may be prompted by things people say about that person. Oh, yes. And, and, and suddenly we're, we're, we're quite animated, actually, remembering that person. And of course, we're thinking, well, who was that person in relation to me? And, and what difference did that make? What did that person maybe impart to me? And we do hear some touching things, and I hope they're meant, when people say that the Queen inspired them, some quality of a life that inspired them and helped make them the, the person that they are today. And so that's all part of what we think about and, in a sense, come to the question, well, who am I? And is it different as a result of that person, my relationship with them? Now they're gone. Well, will I ever be the same again? So we will have to learn to see events like Trooping of the Colour and uh, other royal days, as it were, and she will be absent. And that absence is going to be mocked for a long, long time. Because in the end, death is a big thing. Death is a big thing. And much as we might like to sort of push it away, and much as people might like to defer thinking about it or, or demand protection from it as though we can be protected, you know, from it forever. Death is a big thing. One of the comments that's come through is that uh, even our former prime minister said that we thought she'd live forever. We thought she, you know, she'd just go on and on and on that she'd live forever. Well, friends, nobody does. There's only one person who broke that trend and who came back from the dead and stayed back from the dead. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody else, however high their office, will escape the last enemy death. It's a big thing. Death is something that should make us solemn because death opens up to us, doesn't it? There, The whole of eternity, there's an eternal dimension. The afterlife, judgment, heaven and hell. And so it's right for us to mourn thoughtfully, solemnly, to reflect. Yes, we do, and we're right to remember the family, the royal family. Well, I think the mystique uh, can be safely put to one side, their flesh and blood. They are real people, and they will be missing the loss of a mother, grandmother, whatever other relation she bore to, to those different members of the royal family. And imagine the people that she employed and worked there in the palace will be greatly, greatly touched by her passing away. And we remember them, their flesh and blood. They will be thinking, and I imagine some of them will be feeling not a little regret, not a little sadness about things that they had done, in which they knew perhaps broke the hearts of their late mother and late father. There'll be much soul searching, and we should pray for them. We should pray for our king, King Charles III. We keep saying that's going to take some getting used to, but so we're going to have to. And he was close to tears, wasn't he, as he made his announcements to the nation and spoke his kind words there about his, his late mother. We must pray for him. I've alluded to him in prayer already. We can't conceal the fact that great evidence there of Christian faith or conviction Man needs Christ, needs him, needs him all the better to be king. 
And so we pray for him. It's right to mourn, but it's also right to avoid unbiblical sentimentality. There's a lot of that about. It's astonishing, isn't it, really, that uh, things that people now are saying, you never hear them say it any other time. (laughs) Somebody needs to die before people will say, you're in our prayers. Well, I hope that they mean that when they say that to the king or the royal family or people from other nations say they're praying for our nation, that we're in in their prayers. Well, I'd like to think that uh, we were or that the royal family is. But I must say, I wonder, when I look at who those people are, I've heard pretty little evidence of them praying or indeed having any kind of serious conviction about God or living in a way that showed they had some serious conviction about God. And there's a lot of sentimental things that are said at this time and that we must perhaps just step back from. Though if it is to be said that uh, we are to have the royal family in our prayers, well, as I've just mentioned, well, let's be that and let's do that. And rather than perhaps read yet more details in the paper and how much there is there and wall-to-wall coverage on the uh, on the television, but remember to pray for them. To remember to pray for them. They're flesh and blood. And they have perhaps many thoughts there, many, many thoughts, some of which we can guess and some of which we cannot guess. Let's pray for them. And let's mourn wisely. Let's mourn wisely. Not wanting to be a bit of a damp squib here or uh, kind of bring a jarring note into the, the whole theme. But firstly, to say this, that yes, I think there was evidence that our queen was a believer. I think that there is. I don't know for sure, because I didn't know her personally. But there are things, and I remember hearing from somebody who had actually preached before the queen and the royal family, and then had lunch with them. It wasn't as if he was some great bishop there, or some of the people you're going to see on the television screens in the weeks ahead, but uh, just so happened that uh, he lived near Balmoral. And he was a minister in a church, and it's almost like a kind of rotor system. And you'll be asked to go and, and preach. And uh, he came away most impressed, actually, with with the Queen's understanding and the questions that she asked him. Uh, and and he came away much heartened from that. Well, that's just one anecdote. That's one story. But it certainly heartened me, and I think I can relay that from the pulpit there. That I have great hope, actually, for Her Majesty's uh, eternal standing. So we remember that. But we also, and well, there have been people unkind enough perhaps at this time to mention, well, she was the head of the Church of England, wasn't she? And had in her coronation oath back in 1953 promised to be the defender of the faith. Well, we look and not here with any sense of tramphalism or gloating. Uh, We're not a non-conformist church for nothing. We've not seen that we don't really believe that having somebody else over the headship of your church that we should be local churches guided by the Holy Spirit and the Bible and with church officers, the better or worse, pastors, elders, deacons, church members and so forth. And that therein is a government, not bishops and archbishops with all due respect, and not even queens and kings with even more due respect. We're not non-conformists for nothing. And, well, how... That is at the throne how our queen answers that as being defender of the faith. Then 
I can only say I do not know how quite she is able to answer that, other than to say that hers was almost an impossible task to be that, but also to be the monarch and to be all that was required of her as the queen, to be controversial, or to be divisive, that it was almost an impossible task that she had. And perhaps it would be, and I speak here as a, as a nonconformist minister across to whatever the, uh, the place of the established church within the constitution is. And perhaps something of its deficiency is seen there. The queen as defender of the faith was actually powerless to act upon that and to defend the faith, which sadly in so many of the Anglican churches, and I say this with no glee or gladness, uh, is not there visible or evident. So it's right for us to mourn, to mourn wisely and thoughtfully, to remember what she could do and to remember what she couldn't do and what she was powerless to do and could make no decisive influential difference in. My second heading, I'm moving on. We respect authority. We respect authority. We are bid there, aren't we? Romans chapter 13, I won't read it now, but verses 1 to 7, to have authority in respect. And First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 tells that also. Well, what authority was it? I've already kind of referred to the monarchy having a role that we're not quite clear on. We scratch our heads what it means to be a constitutional monarchy. Well, she was not, for instance, able to start wars. Kings in times past did precisely that. Started an awful lot of wars. And uh, we might feel a little sad that they had that power and used it in the way they did. She does not have, or did not have, nor does the present king have, the right to levy taxes, raise taxes, you know, and fight some of these wars, or to pay for the lavish lifestyle that he, she was going to enjoy. Doesn't, doesn't have that power to raise taxes, uh, didn't have the, the right to remove rulers, couldn't say when Liz Truss visited her on Monday, she must think about that, that she was one of the last people, as it were, that the Queen in her public office met with and uh, invited her, invited Liz Truss to form the next government. Well, she couldn't do anything but do that, actually. It would have been a constitutional crisis of gigantic proportions if she said, Sorry, I don't recognize that and on your bike or such words. Not that she'd said that, I'm sure, but uh, say something to that equivalent. Constitutional crisis, massive proportions would have followed. She couldn't do that. Can't just remove governors or prime ministers or, or, or tell them that's it, your time's up, go. I don't like you. Sovereigns in the past uh, could do that. Uh, got them into trouble sometimes, but they, they kind of could do that. Neither could she, and thinking about that as defender of the faith, express views on controversial matters. She had to studiously avoid doing that, not to give her views on various matters that are of national debate. She couldn't risk antagonizing significant parts of public opinion. And so, like Republicans in, in our, in our midst there, she couldn't antagonize them and had to tread carefully and respectfully towards a, for better or worse, a diverse Britain. And she recognised that. In other words, her hands were very severely tied, as are the kings today. But we respect her, I think, because may I offer this thought, that even if she couldn't stop or start wars or lower taxes or raise taxes, 
even if she couldn't, in the end, the church over which she is nominally the head, she could not actually be the defender of the faith, that her influence was one of restraining, a good and helpful restraining influence. That we might lament, and I certainly do, and I'm sure most of us do, the moral, spiritual state of our nation. But I can't prove the point. But I just suspect it might have been a little worse, but for the fact that we had the Queen that we did for the years that we had her there. Who knows what conversations in private she had? Who knows when she could be perhaps a little more indiscreet, when it was off the record, when there weren't cameras rolling or people hanging on her every word, and where she knew she could speak in confidence and those people that she spoke to were not blurted out to make a fortune from the media in passing on such confidences. Who knows what good and helpful counsel she might have given and that she might have exercised there under God an influence of restraint. Those things that we read about, the restraint, that restraining hand that things might have been worse without her and the person that she was. Because here it is. If she is, perhaps, just for the sake of making the matter simple, the public face of the United Kingdom, then what she, as a person, as a private person, that those who knew her would almost say, well, what you saw is what you get, that what you saw in public was the person, the real person, that she was those qualities that as soon as she stopped waving on the balcony, she then became somebody else and, uh, you know, was, was there having a tantrum or shouting at people or treating people as though they're stupid. But no, she was that same person, a very credible person in private, who brought then a credibility to who she was in her public office. And all of those things that were really part of her own experience in the Second World War, growing up then, formative experiences that she carried forward. People have made uh, acknowledgement of it, her loyalty, her hard work, her sense of duty, keeping promises, public service, self-denial, modesty. That for all the fact that she was the most public figure, identifiable with crowns and special clothes and the rest, that she herself did not draw attention to herself, that she was actually a very private, very modest person in that regard. And we have to say this, we say it carefully, but those are actually deeply, deeply Christian virtues. Those are virtues of which the Bible would speak. And I might have puzzled you by reading Titus chapter one, but if I could just read again a portion, this is what's expected of pastors and, and, and elders. But it says, here's a steward of God, verse seven, Titus one, must be blameless, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, and then goes on holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Well, some of those qualities there, good. Loving what is good, well, somebody who was closer to her than certainly I am, described, yes, her goodness. <laughs> There was something very good about her. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and how. Just, and perhaps even, as we say there, holy is not an inappropriate thing. Or in First Timothy and chapter 
three, if, if you're familiar where we are in the Bible, but again, speaking about preachers and pastors, again, they must be blameless and husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And again, we might say there that her discretion, self-control, self-denial are things that the Bible speaks very strongly about. And it may be there that common grace, just who she was by nature, endowed her with some of those things or her own experiences in the war uh, inbuilt some of that there. But we might remark upon that, that actually the Bible would also extol those attitudes and virtues that people speak of there. Well, my final uh, point really is actually a rather solemn and sad one to have to bring. But if we say that of her, and if we say that actually that, which was in private, but actually brought into her public office, that there wasn't a great mismatch, that what she was there and what she was in private were, were not totally different things, and that those virtues that she exhibited we might say are good things, then suddenly we have to say this, that as we look at our nation, it is as if she was there and the nation over which she was sovereign has been moving steadily and steadily away from those qualities. As though she was there and she was exercising, perhaps as I suggest, a restraint, holding back some things but only really in, in a slender way that everything else was moving further and further and further away from the qualities that she embodied and exhibited. Well, if I might permit myself just to read Second Timothy chapter 3 in the first four verses. I hear this and think, actually, is this the nation more that we resemble now? compared to the qualities that she represented. Let me read it. But know this, writes the Apostle Paul, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. It's sad to read it. And the apostle is inspired. God gave him that to say, and, and he wrote it. And we might ask, well, has our nation actually, perhaps for the most part during her time, reigning as queen, that it's been moving in that direction? Unloving, unforgiving, brutal, no self-control. Lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. Well, time does not permit me to kind of dwell on any of those headings at length, but simply for us to reflect what she reflected back to us. Perhaps people didn't heed it, didn't, didn't obey it, didn't follow it. And though Princess Diana hoped that she would be queen of hearts, or maybe a queen, not because she set out to do this, but in some way was queen of our consciences, except those consciences we have as a nation, well and truly anaesthetized, well and truly numbed, that we should more resemble, sadly, what we read in Second Timothy chapter 3 in the first four verses, rather than the virtues that she embodied. 
And I illustrate it like this. It's a pretty clumsy illustration, but, you know, it's like a family and they meet up at Christmas and they all meet together at that time. And all the young, younger members of the family come and well, they're doing what all younger people do these days, at least uh, seemingly so the most part. And there, there's a, an older grandparent or, or an aunt who just exudes something different, a dignity, a restraint, a simplicity of life, a self-denial. And, well, the younger family members will go and see her and visit her or sit there in the big family gathering and talk with her. They're glad she's there. They're glad she's around. They're glad once a year that they can go and see her. And she's a bit of a reminder to them of something, in a sense, that they're not. And you can imagine them sort of saying quite openly, quite honestly, oh, you know, I, I wish I was like you. I, w- I wish I did things like you did, but oh, I've got my boyfriend and girlfriend. I'm doing the things I'm doing out there and clubbing and, and all of that. And I know I'm perhaps doing wrong and, oh, dear, I must do better. And there's a sort of slight resolve. And they go away after this imaginary Christmas gathering that I'm picturing to you. And, oh, something of the restraint is there for a while, but then dissolves. The world's too attractive. There's too much going on. And whatever slight change, they revert quickly back. And maybe, sadly, we have to say that the Queen, over her long years of reign, maybe restrained, yes, maybe restrained a bit, but that, and I wonder if she grieved over this too. The nation that she presided over was moving in a different direction, where loyalty and hard work, where selflessness, self-denial, not quite so highly regarded or thought of. Or if lip service is paid, as my younger family members in my illustration to this elderly aunt or grandparent I've pictured, who's more sort of stern and, and kind of pressing through and self-denial and absorbing pain, getting on with it kind of mentality. They appreciate it, but are not going to actually follow it. And so we see there in this time of weeping and mourning, our prayers should be very much for our nation. If our nation reflects those qualities, I offer this thought, we're in trouble. Well, let's come to our concluding him, which is number 92, our God, our help in ages past. Hymn number 92. 